Hello and welcome to Debatable, the podcast breaking down controversial topics, unpopular opinions and social issues one conversation at a time. You are hosted by me, Crystal Andrews, writer, author and founder of Seafeed. In this episode, we're talking politics. Specifically, if old tweets and shitty Facebook posts are already ending the careers of older politicians... What is going to happen when young people who have had our entire lives online, what happens when we decide to enter the political sphere? Will the permanence of the internet and, you know, everything that you've posted online stays online regardless of whether you've deleted it, will the permanence of the internet stop us from really accessing our political power when the time comes? Huge question because we only do huge questions on this podcast, <laughs> but to help figure it, help us figure it out today, I'm joined by Rachel Conigan, who is the news and political reporter for Junkie. Thanks for giving me your time today, Rachel. No worries, Crystal. Thanks so much for inviting me in. Absolute pleasure. So your uh, stories for Junkie do a really great job of explaining some heavy political news topics while still being very witty and funny, which is what I'm all about. So thank you for doing that for us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what has been the most interesting story you've kind of covered in the first like crazy six months of 2020? Is there anything that stands out as being kind of just wild? Oh my God, what a question. All of it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess the thing for me, I sort of joined Junkie sort of just when the bushfires were starting. So I feel like it's just been an absolutely crazy couple of months, you know, obviously going straight from bushfires, then going straight into coronavirus and going straight into the protest. So yeah, it's just been a bit of a whirlwind really. <laughs> but yeah, it's been um, really great to sort of dive straight into those big issues. Yeah, it's so funny because um, you like working in media, every month it seemed like a big month of news mm -hmm. and you get to the end and you go, okay, but you know, next month's going to be different. But then next, the next month, something else crazy happens, something else huge and totally world-changing happens, and you go, okay, mm -hmm. but that's not going to happen again next month, right? And that's pretty much happened now. Oh, since, my God, I'm know, just bracing myself December. for the next thing. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, you know, we just keep waiting for things to calm down and it just hasn't yet. <laughs> One of these days we'll take a breath. We'll Hopefully. Take a break. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Um, so I am really keen to hear, I guess, not only your expertise but also your opinion about this idea that, uh, digital permanence could potentially really be cutting off the careers of young people with political ambition. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, it's curious because for the most part, really, it's young people who are really driving maybe not cancel culture, but mm -hmm. holding accountability for old tweets, old Facebook posts, things on social media that have been done, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But I suppose from your from your point of view as someone who's in this stuff every day, I, I'm curious to know how social media has changed political reporting specifically mm -hmm. because it seems like that's one area where, you know, the, the rise of social media is obviously something that politicians didn't have to deal with 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess the first thing, I mean, obviously sort of social media has kind of fed into that 24-hour news cycle where I guess the media is constantly looking for that fresh angle, something new to talk about. You know, also obviously being active on social media has given politicians a way to, I guess, engage with young voters in a way that mm. they really didn't 20 years ago, like you said, and really, I guess, humanises them, which otherwise, you know, they sort of seem a bit inaccessible sometimes. But I guess really like the biggest thing 
the way that social media has changed political reporting is that you know politicians they're able to communicate with voters directly you know they don't need to go through journalists or like traditional media you know and even though usually those social media accounts are you know heavily managed by a social media team like it's still a place where you can see a bit more of an unfiltered side to them which i guess sometimes can get them to a bit of trouble as we've seen and as you sort of mentioned <laughs> with the whole cancel culture thing yeah, like it's it's so interesting because even though, as I say, I've worked in media, I've never really done the political thing. I've never done a political beat. So my point of view is definitely more so as someone who's consuming the news and someone who like loves to follow those kinds of stories. But is part of the job now literally like just following these accounts and doing like these Twitter kind of investigations or is it that other people are – you know, members of the public sitting on screenshots that they've had and just like waiting for a time to send them in? Because it does seem quite labor intensive. Like who's doing that work? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, great question. I mean, it's funny. Like I think, you know, like there's definitely like, I guess like a bit of a thirst for a negative story, but like, I really don't think that you can attribute that necessarily to like the social media generation, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. You know, like I feel like bad news and controversial things has always kind of be what's grabbed people's attention And now that's really just amplified because people are sharing it. Algorithms are then promoting that, picking it up. It spreads further. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. Um, But I guess when you're sort of bringing it back to, like, political reporting and stuff like that, like, I think now people who are sort of this generation, like, they know that social media can come back to haunt you. You know, like, this is a generation that's sort of grown up with that idea of digital permanency and it's not really a new thing, thing to them you know, like it was to people who are sort of of that age now who didn't grow up with social media. Like I distinctly remember being told, you know, from a from a young, well, from the origins of the, of the internet in households really, that what you put on the internet stays there forever. You know, even if you think you've deleted it, the data is still, it's, 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 it's never goes away. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> it, it absolutely. It can be dug up if need be. Yeah. Um, and so that, I mean, I, the, because that's what I know, I feel like that plays a huge part. But I guess, you know, politicians saying things that are unsavoury has been around forever. It's just that now we kind of have the receipts. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I like I definitely understand why some people sort of talk about cancel culture and they think that, you know, outrage over things that happened, you know, maybe years ago can be a bit unproductive. You know, I, I know Obama was even saying last year he referred to it talking to sort of how it's not necessarily the best form of activism because it's more about people feeling, you know, a bit self-satisfied or, you know, having that sense of superiority and having, you know, being able to call people out. And I guess that's something to reflect on, but I really don't think that you can argue that cancel culture as a concept is worse than what we had before, which was people just getting away with saying racist, sexist stuff. Because like you said, it's always been out there. It's just now that we are able to drag it out and call people out for it. And I guess, like, there are plenty of legitimate reasons, you know, to cancel someone, like, especially in the context of politics, you know, these people are being <laughs> elected to represent us. You kind of want to know, you know, whether they're making decisions, you know, in our best interests. And, you know, like, if someone thinks a sex stroke is funny, do you think that they're going to be the best person to vote on legislation about reproductive rights or childcare policy or you know, if they're out there making a crack about Muslim people, do you think they're just going to be unbiased when making decisions about, you know, say asylum seekers? So, I mean, I guess that's the thing about cancel culture is that it really gives people who 
like historically were part of those powerless groups and 10 years ago they just had to suck it up and get over it now they have an avenue to actually hold those people to account yeah it's that line isn't it between because I have problems with cancel culture anyway because I there's a line between accountability and cancelling that seems yeah that seems really nebulous and like it moves all the time but in my mind I kind of they're still at whether we call it council culture, whether we call it holding people to account, mm-hmm. and then particularly with politicians, there definitely still has to be a space where you like criticize and analyze the things that these people, you know, do and say because behavior should be reflective of who you are as a person. Um, but I mean, now that where I mean, my whole my whole life has been online, you know, Mm. not even just my whole adult life, but from when I was a teenager and we had a a computer with internet in the house, like I'm sure I've said some dumb things online. I wouldn't even know where they were anymore. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And I think like, you know, the world is kind of becoming, I guess, for lack of a better word, like a bit more woke, you know. So people now who are thinking more carefully about things they used to joke about, things they used to say and recognizing that like oh that's probably a bit dicey you know that's probably not okay and like you know it never was you know but now we're sort of acknowledging that finally and I think you know that's where sort of cancel culture can be a bit dicey is when it turns into that mob mentality where you're just sort of slamming someone and shutting them down rather than trying to use it I guess as a tool to educate and obviously it's on a case-by-case basis like there's a difference between saying something dumb and saying something that's like outwardly racist or sexist or homophobic. And, but I think, you know, even if someone has said something that's a bit ignorant in the past, like it should still be pointed out just because I think you want to know whether these people still hold those views or whether they've developed. Um, And even if it was, you know, just something recent, you know, you want to try to educate them. And I think that there's a way you can do that without completely shutting them down. Because ultimately, like, you do want to give people a bit of an opportunity to reflect and hopefully be better. Um, Yeah, and I I don't necessarily think that just that mob mentality where people just pile on, like, I don't think that's always very useful to just completely silence someone. And it's funny where the flashpoint in politics is because the argument kind of is that if these people, you know, if, if politician X thinks that and other people get wind that that's what they have said. Mm. They can kind of rally around that and it brings out the other people who go, well, I think that too. And so now I'm going to, you know, support you and push you higher up through the power system because I also think, I also agree with whatever inappropriate comment that you've made. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, I guess it gets really hairy because you can, call it out but then on the other hand there's just seems like an equal amount of people who are saying no I absolutely agree with that and it's just like two sides of the same coin yeah totally and I guess like politics you know by its very nature like it's it's pretty combative you know and it is frustrating and I guess the danger is like what we were talking about before like you know because you know people do sort of tend to rally about around a bad story sometimes and I guess that danger is where you do see it in the media a lot is that those people who are saying offensive things gathers, I guess, outrage clicks. And then that's what, like, that's how you sort of get people like Pauline Hanson on breakfast television, you know? And (laughs) so, and then, and then her message is amplified. And like you said, more people tend to hear it. Whereas if we just sort of ignored it and just let it go away, 
you know, like you know, there's definitely a valid argument to be had there. It's similar, I guess, to Fraser Anning, you know, like he sort of got into parliament on a bit of a fluke. And then even though he was voted out of the next election. It was election, like by default, really. Yeah, basically. And then even though he was voted out the next election, you know, those are people who sort of now know that he has a platform. So, I mean, I guess it's a great question and it's a, a difficult one to answer. Well, this is actually a perfect point to go into two specific cases or stories from last year's federal election Mm -hmm. that I think really sums up, one, how quickly this can all happen, and two, that young people are going to face this in a much tougher way than their older counterparts have done. Mm -hmm. So a quick recap for listeners. In last year's election, there were two fresh young uh, political things who came to run for the first time. So Luke Creasy uh, is a school teacher. He was running for Labor in Melbourne and Jessica Whelan was running for the Liberals in Tasmania. So they were both actually pretty appealing candidates, I think, because they were young and quite fresh and it's nice to see different players in the game sometimes rather than seeing the same old names over and over. But then I suppose somewhat predictably some old social media posts surfaced and there was a lot of pressure around those until it effectively pushed them both out of the race so Luke Creasy actually was like withdrew himself um the liberals dropped Jessica Whelan but she decided to run as an independent and she was not successful so Luke had shared a rape joke um seven years prior so in 2012 and Jessica had published some really disgusting comments about immigration um, just two years prior in 2017. The thing that really struck me about both of those cases is that they both use this same kind of explanation, which is really common. And you hear it all the time that they made a mistake and they had grown since then and it didn't really reflect who they are now, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've all like heard these kind of apologies. Mm -hmm. And then but at the same time, you know, that cut both of their political careers like it was dead in the water. Mm -hmm. You know, they're gone now. But yet Pauline Hanson is still, she's the comeback queen, right? (laughs) She's still. Yeah, that's one word for it, for sure. (laughs) And says just, says things that are just, if not, just as bad, if not worse. Yeah, definitely. Seems to be different. I don't know. It feels different. I know. And I think that's where the question of how effective cancel culture actually is as well comes into it. Like, for example, taking Jessica Whelan. So, yeah, she was stood down, resigned, ran as an independent. Um, So I would argue almost like how cancelled was she? You know, even though she wasn't successful, she was still able to run. She was still able to have that attempt. And she's actually now a counsellor. So she is actually still in a position of power. So even though, like, the backlash didn't really completely put a hold on all of her political ambitions and stuff like that. She's still within the system in a different capacity. For sure. And I mean, I guess this is a little bit outside of politics, even though it's related. For example, it's like Alan Jones, Andrew Bolt, you know, like they seem to be able to get away with anything and they still have really successful careers. So, um, you know, I think sometimes if you are still in a position of power, you know, you're a powerful straight white man, you know, the the question of being cancelled is very different, you know, to you know, other people from minority groups who seem to have a lot more backlash when they're the ones in the firing line. So that's another interesting thing to think about as well. Um, but, yeah, just coming back to what you were saying about the excuses that they have, like it's it's definitely really hard to know whether to believe someone if they have had that personal growth, you know. Um, 
you know, like, like Luke, like you were talking, for example, you know, like he shared some, you know, pretty gross memes, you know, making rape jokes. And, you know, at first Bill Shorten, who was obviously Labor leader at the time, he defended him and he stood by him. And, you know, it was only up until a few hours after that press conference where he kind of was still on his side, something else came out. Um, sort of he made some awful comments about a female friend of his and mm. um, that was kind of the tipping point. I think it was like four or five sort of different incidents that sort of led to a pattern of behaviour. Um, and, you know, like he did say that, you know, that doesn't um, reflect who he is now. They were awful comments. He apologised. Um, you know, I guess, but at the end of the day, like it's politics, you know, and it, a large part of it is personality and who's going to want to vote for a person who has, you know, offended 50% of the population, you know, I don't think that they really had any other option than to sort of look for a, a more suitable candidate. In my mind, he had probably the more believable claim to personal growth um, because of the age, well, the distance, I suppose, mm-hmm. between when he was running and when the posts were from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And On I guess, the other hand, Jessica Whelan, it was only two years two years prior, right? So it's quite close. But then, you you know, it does raise the point of like, well, who's to say she hasn't had, a, you know, an, an epiphany and who's to say she hasn't gone through this incredible period of growing and learning herself in two years and who's to say that he has or hasn't in seven years? Like what kind of timeline do we even put on this stuff? I mean, I'm very glad that I'm a different person to who I was at 22. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I don't like to think that people don't have the capacity for change. Um, but, yeah, I, I think all these things definitely have to sort of be judged on a case-by-case basis. And that's the hard thing is that you can't really know, you know, I guess, you know, if there's someone who is currently in politics, I guess you can sort of judge whether they've sort of, um, I guess, had that epiphany based on the kind of policies that they're voting for, you could kind of see whether those biases are reflected in that. But if there's someone who's just campaigning, like you really don't know who they're going to be until they get in. Um, So I think that's the thing. It's just looking at sort of like the evidence and sometimes you just have to, you know, either decide if that's a standard you're going to accept or that's something that you're going to just say that's the end of it. Um, But I think at the end of the day, like, just because it was a long time ago doesn't mean that it's not valid to call it out and still ask whether that's an attitude that they hold. And, you know, because at the end of the day, these are people who are going to make decisions that impact our lives. So, yeah, it's, it's a really hard one. Um, and I guess, yeah, I don't really know how to, you know, exactly answer about whether to believe someone has that, that personal growth. It's, yeah, it's definitely tricky. <laughs> Oh, trust me, no question asked on this podcast <laughs> as an answer. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing has a an answer, but it, it is like, you know, and it just comes back. It seems like it just loops back to the same biases that we already have because then it becomes a personal decision about whether or not we believe someone's apology and whether we believe that they've changed, which, of course, draws on our own very flawed judgments of other mm. people. You know, like we're not we're not very good at judging other people's mm-hmm. intentions. Yeah, for um, sure. So how can we, you're so right, it's like how do you know for someone who hasn't actually had the chance at that political career yet, how do you know whether they actually are different from who they were when they've made some awful comments? Yeah, and that's it. Should they should they have the chance? Like it kind of, for me, it's this 
tug of war between this is not the type of opinion or the type of thinking that we want to support. But on the other hand, should these things be completely career-ending, especially when it comes to politics? Um, I mean, in Jessica Whelan's case, it sounds like maybe she's pursuing a different route or taking some more time with it, maybe until she gets to an age where shit doesn't stink like Alan Jones and and Pauline Hanson. But it just seemed to affect these younger emerging political powers more than the established forces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, I guess I think when also something to think about as well is that like when you're talking about people being stripped of their power, I mean, I think that, you know, like still being in politics, like it is still almost a bit of a privilege to get to represent people in your community and stuff like that. So I guess almost it's worth thinking about flipping the question around and, you know, I I guess like if you are someone who holds racist views or sexist views, like then yeah, I hope you are stripped of your power. You know, I don't think you deserve to have any, you know, like these are things that we definitely need to challenge. And like, it's, it's definitely true. Like, I think we constantly are shifting our barometer for what we find offensive. You know what I mean? Like 10 years ago as a society, we were comfortable, you know, laughing at fat jokes or, you know, using the word gay as an insult or making racist jokes or putting blackface on television. And that was never okay. But just now people on social media, it's like, it's, you know, a tool so that people from those groups have the power to call it out, you know, and basically that's what cancel culture is at its like basic form. It's people who traditionally had no power now have an avenue to challenge those people. And, you know, like people in power, you know, there's consequences now for what you say and maybe they're not used to it. But I guess like a lot of the time the frustrating thing is that the people who often say, oh, you know, cancel culture has gone too far. It's just kind of a way to sort of delegitimize that criticism and like, you know, definitely, like there's sometimes you can see a bit of a faux outrage and, you know, obviously, you know, people are complicated and people make mistakes. But I guess like if you want to be in a position of power, your words have power and you need to be held accountable for that. So I guess like rather than necessarily framing it as like, you know, these people are being stripped of power, I think it's almost like levelling the playing field, you know, especially because when you do look at politics, the sort of like it almost seems like the rule the majority are you know like people from these privileged groups like mainly men mainly white men so I think you know there's nothing wrong with those people sort of having to think a little bit more carefully about what they say you know so rather than necessarily worrying about the repercussions for politicians I'm also thinking about the repercussions on the groups who might have been targeted by stupid comments you know because yeah yeah, I think they should be held to a higher standard. You touched on something actually very interesting, which was that we do shift our our goalposts and our standards for what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah. It's just a natural thing that happens in society as we progress and as we grow and as we learn new things as a collective group. But I wonder if like in 20 years' time when our peers are – you know, really cemented in politics, whether we will have shifted the goalposts a little bit further out to protect us from the outrage over the dumb stuff that we said on MySpace at age 16. You know? <laughs> like, it, like, will we always naturally move those goalposts up a little bit and a little bit to, sh- to protect ourselves and 
Yeah, I guess there wasn't really a question there, but that's just what <laughs> I think is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's an interesting thought, but like I think um, I think it's natural that people sort of kind of want to close ranks and I guess protect themselves from the heat and stuff like that. But I don't know. I kind of feel like we're at quite an important part, like moment of social change. You know what I mean? Um, so like I feel like the more that we do try to sort of shift those goalposts the more that people will kind of continue to challenge that you know what I mean like um I feel like things um like the reason those things aren't acceptable anymore is because they're marginalizing these groups and you know now that those groups have the power to sort of call it out and be like hey guys this is crap like we don't have to take this I I really don't see that going backwards and and then suddenly deciding to shut up if that makes sense you know yeah I know that makes sense Mm. I get that. I think there's another important thread throughout all of this, which is worth highlighting that our responsibility almost as people who read news, who read about politicians as members of the public, because I definitely feel that we drive the interest in the bad things that people do over the good things that they do. And then that, I mean, is really very relevant for politicians because the way that they, the ways that they might fail us are amplified to me, it seems like much more than the good things that they might achieve with their time in office. So I guess the first question for that is, do you notice a difference in the traffic or the interest in a story about a politician doing the wrong thing versus a politician achieving something really great? Uh, Yeah, I guess I would. I mean, I think, um, like we sort of mentioned before, like unfortunately bad news tends to be the thing that grabs people's attention a lot of the time. And, you know, um, people do sort of love to click on stories about, you know, like what has this person done now? You know, right there. Um, but I think there is still room for like those positive stories. Like people do get exhausted by the whole outrage culture and things like that. And, but I think also like, I I almost feel like you kind of assume that the people in power should be good people as kind of a base standard. And unfortunately, not always the case, (laughs) Um, but you sort of hope that they're going to be well-rounded people. And so I think that that's why like when they do do something that's unacceptable or something bad, like you kind of want to know about it so you can make a decision on whether that's a deal breaker and whether you want to vote them out based on that. Um, But yeah, I think sometimes, unfortunately, that does mean that sort of like the sort of like the more positive things can sometimes get missed. Yeah, and then when it comes specifically to social media as well, like as much as I hate when we blame things on the algorithms, there (laughs) is a key piece of the puzzle in that, which is that obviously social media rewards engagement, right? So then when Mm. we get outraged and we comment or we tag or we share on something negative, we're telling the algorithm to show us more of this, please, like give me more. Um, And there's actually a really good article about algorithms and outrage, which I'll link in the show notes, but basically just explains how that outrage culture and the outrage cycle drives the performance of those stories. So then in my mind, you know, we can get mad about it all we like, but as people and as consumers of media and news, we like all really play a role in circulating that and driving it, that negativity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are definitely good news stories out there and I think, you know, it would be great to see, I guess, that promoted a little bit more, but you're completely right. You know, like there are, um, you know, those bad news stories do tend to be shared around a lot more. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, that's definitely the positive news stories that are out there. And I think politicians are like do generally try to use their social media channels to sort of promote that a little bit more as well. What's like the tipping point? If if you start to see something trending that's negative that a politician has done, or maybe before it's trending, but if you start to see chatter around it on different parts of the internet, what's the tipping point for you as to like when you'll cover it? Like is there a critical mass where there's so many people talking about it that you can't ignore it or is it more of a judgment call on whether you think the audience, you know, specifically Junkie's audience cares about this thing? Like because I suppose you're a gatekeeper in a certain way. Yeah, and it's an interesting conversation about how much is sort of reporting on it and how much then that sort of contributes to it. So like that's definitely yeah, how stuff. much is feeding the how much is feeding the beast and how exactly. much exactly. And you and you never want to sort of cross that line. Um, but I guess there is a bit of discretion used. I mean, obviously, not everything is going to suit the junkie audience the same way it would suit you know um, the ABC or Sky News or News Corp or whatever. You know, like we tend to have a slightly different audience to maybe like the mainstream publications and things like that. Um, so yeah, there is definitely a bit of discretion there, but if it is something that people are talking about, um, especially sort of younger people, we will kind of have a look at it and be like, okay, you know, will it affect our audience? Is this something that they should know about? Um, so yeah, I guess it's just something that we sort of have a discussion about and then make a judgment call from there. Because there's definitely examples of issues that are disproportionately important to young people. I know for a a couple of years ago, the really, really big one was festival pill testing, which the general population, I mean, does care about a bit, but not as much as young people do. And so then it creates this, you know, weird little category within the whole scheme of a politician could, you know, have something in their history or say some kind of comment that is specific to that topic which doesn't really strike a chord with the rest of the population maybe necessarily, but is super important to one segment of the audience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, like you said, like sort of we, we're not going to cover every single thing that happens across the political spectrum because quite recently, honestly, we don't have, you know, the resources. Like we would prefer to focus on things that really matter to our audience. So, um, you like, feel, you know, pill testing is one example of that. So, you know, if a politician speaks to that, in whatever context, whether that's like in support of it or whether that's against it, like we want to make sure that we're covering that issue in a really well-rounded way so that sort of people can be um, as well-informed on that as they possibly can be. Yeah. It's a big, it's a very, very big topic. I, <laughs> I just, you know, I always come back to thinking, could I have said something, when I see something, it's like, could I imagine myself having said something like this in the past that I didn't even know I'd completely forgotten was out there and how would I feel about what opportunities that might be cutting off for me now? Would I be gracious in, you know, stepping back? I, I, this might be an unpopular kind of opinion, but I unfortunately think that there is the more um, generally decent person who, when those things would come out, would do the quote unquote right thing and say, Hey, I'm going to take myself out of, out of this race, out of this position, which almost like feeds into the loop in a negative way because that's probably more of an indicator of someone who's going to learn and grow as opposed to the person who stubbornly sticks by it and says, well, no, that's taken out of context and no, I will not step down and, or even worse, I stand by the comments. So it's almost like self-selecting 
the people that we want to actually have there, self-selecting them out of the game, which is a side effect of this whole thing that I'm not sure people think about as much. Yeah, no, like that's definitely a good point. And I, I mean, I'm sh- I can't, obviously can't speak to everyone, but I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who've sort of thought back to what they said when they were a teenager and thought, oh, wow, like I can't believe that that's, you know, something that I thought was fun, you know. Um, and I think that's just a reflection of like the changing standards that we have. And But I think the fact that we're even considering that and the fact that we're even thinking about that is a good thing you know what I mean like I think it's important to sort of you know have that kind of self-reflection um but unfortunately like you're right like the people who I guess would sort of cop that and sort of stand down um are probably have a bit of a different perspective than the people who would sort of stubbornly stick to their guns but I guess the good thing about politics is that we can choose whether we vote for them or not so I mean even by virtue of I guess Uh, bringing attention to the cancellation or whatever you want to call it you know like people we need to find a new word yeah I mean I guess like if people know that this is something that politician is sticking to then you know how well you would hope that they wouldn't then do very well in the polls and then that would kind of just sort of correct itself yeah another controversial opinion that I have (laughs) is that unfortunately you know, what the Pauline Hansons and the Fraser Rannings of the world do very well is find a way to really light up their voter base mm-hmm. in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we need to, I don't know, I need to learn some of that. We need to learn how they do that and then use it for good. <laughs> Definitely. And it's, yeah, it's frustrating to watch. And I think uh, like part of the whole outrage culture as well, it's kind of fed into this kind of um, you know, partisan loop, whereas like sort of like rather than sort of having a kind of rational discussion and trying to meet in the middle and educate people about different views and different perspectives, you know, it's just become really competitive and people, you know, just sort of shut down rather than having those discussions. And I think that's what they do really well is just, you know, by being really divisive, basically. Um, and it's frustrating because you kind of can't, it's it's really hard to reason with someone when they're so determined to sort of block out any kind of discussion or any kind of other opinion. Um, but I think, yeah, like that's, that's one of the things we kind of have to balance is like, you know, you know, like, I guess the more that you try to argue with someone, sometimes the more they shut down. So I guess it's about approaching people in a way that's less um, inflammatory, I guess, um, it's probably not the right word, but that's the word I'm going to use. Um, but yeah, just trying to, I guess, sort of come at these people who have sort of ideas that you definitely don't agree with and trying to understand why they hold them so that you can kind of try to dismantle that in a way that they'll be receptive to. And it's a really hard thing to do, um, but it's worth doing, you know. <laughs> it's so difficult. It's it's actually something I've spoken about a lot in various interviews Um I'm talking about my book, How to Win Every Argument, plug. <laughs> um, but like, you know, when you are talking to someone who has completely polar opposite opinion with you and it gets to that place where it can get like almost a bit shouty and very combative and mm. inflammatory, a lot of the time you just need to keep drilling down 
to the thing that's actually the problem because so many, so much of the time it's not what it seems to be on the surface. This is a total detour anyway, but, <laughs> you know, it's like getting down to the real root cause of the issue and addressing that as opposed to staying up top and, you know, kind of talking at cross points and not really getting anywhere. Um, so clearly these very polarising politicians, like they're, they're addressing something in people that those people feel is being ignored by all of the other options so there's definitely something there's definitely something to that I'll try to end on something more practical (laughs) and a little bit more um helpful what would you love young people to know about or just anyone actually not even young people what would you love for people to know or understand about how to consume and read political news Mm -hmm. um in the in a constructive way Right. And I think that's sort of the key as well is sort of trying to make it constructive. And I guess it really loops back to what we were just talking about. Like the important thing for me that I try to encourage people to do is don't depend on one source for all your information. You know, don't yeah. stick to one outlet. You know, like if you're, if you usually read The Australian, try checking out The Guardian or SBS or, if, you know, you're usually, you know, from the ABC, like why not check out Sky News? Like you're probably not going to agree with every single thing that you read, that's fine. You know, I just think just the ability to check out the headline from a different place, you know, it's important just so that you understand, you know, like even if you disagree with it, you understand what's being said because I think it's so easy to just get stuck in a little bubble and you just assume that every single person out there thinks the same way that you do and they just don't, you know. And so then if you do come across a person who's got different views to you, you'll have a bit more background so you can mount a bit more of a coherent discussion about challenging that, you know what I mean? But if you don't know why that they say the things that they do, you can't really, um, you know, have that discussion in a constructive way. You know, for example, like I grew up in regional Australia, you know, but I live in Sydney for work now and, you know, just casting my mind back to the last federal election, you know, like a large chunk of the friends I know from the city were so surprised at the results of the last federal election because they sort of lived in that inner city bubble where everyone sort of thought the same way. And I wasn't part of that, you know, like I sort of had experience from outside that sort of whole world. And so I think if you are a bit more well-researched on different perspectives and things like that, you'll have a greater understanding about why Australia is the way that it is and why certain people are in power. Um, So, yeah, but I just think in general, you know, just checking out the headlines from a few different media outlets, it just helps you form a more balanced view of the world and sort of help you make up your own mind about where you stand rather than just sort of accepting whatever you're being told. It is so important to see it from the other side because then – you you know, you do get a grasp of why people would latch on to another belief. I mean, you made an interesting point about last year's election because I was definitely shocked and I definitely exist in that kind of bubble and it's been something that I've been actively trying to break. Mm. Did you have an inkling before the result that it wasn't going to go the way that everybody was saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, mm. it was definitely something that I wasn't that, I mean, even though like I, you know, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go, but I wasn't necessarily surprised in the way that a lot of my friends were, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like I could, it it didn't necessarily come out of the blue, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's especially relevant in 2020, because even though we don't have 
uh, an Australian federal election coming up. There is the US election this year, mm. um, which is going to be, I think they're probably experiencing the same thing on a much larger scale of the absolute shock of Donald Trump's win in 2016. Again, I was one of those people who was floored Mm -hmm. that that happened. Um, And there's been a lot of talk in the lead up to the November election about what mistakes were made in the reporting of the last election, in the polling, how did Mm -hmm. everybody get it so wrong? And you're so right in the crucial thing is just making sure you are spreading out where you get your information from. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, like the Donald Trump effect, it's not isolated to America. You know, like we were just talking about our own particular cases here in Australia. And that's like, it's definitely something that the media can so easily fall into a trap of, you know, like he, he was just so ridiculous that you just wanted to report on him because it was like Mm -hmm. this crazy phenomenon of like, what is going on? And then, you know, exactly what that does is just amplifies the message. And now here we are, but I'm almost like kind of on a bit of a tangent but like just also looking at American politics like it is still quite different to Australia in the way that um, obviously we have compulsory voting and they don't and even though um, Hillary Clinton was the one who actually won the the popular vote um, you know I do tend to like wonder what would have happened if compulsory voting did exist over there you know and that's why I do find it quite frustrating when sort of people, um, sometimes young people, but not not necessarily just young people, sort of um, feel like their one vote's not going to make a difference or they get quite disillusioned by politics. And it's completely understandable. But, you know, I just don't think that people, um, or I, I suppose I should say, I think that people really should take their vote more seriously because it does actually make a difference. And I think um, just looking at the countries like the US and the UK who don't have compulsory voting like Australia, they're two really good examples of what can happen if people don't, you know, make an effort to have their voices heard. It's You've got it, so you may as well just use it. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you may as well just go, yeah, half their battle is getting people to turn up to vote in the first place, which is, yeah. you know, you've, you've got it, which is why those types of really out there political characters do work so well in countries where they don't have compulsory voting because you've got to get people out of their seats in the first place and get, you know, get them off their asses and get them out to a polling booth, which yeah. you don't really have that um problem here. Yeah. I would say to add on to your advice of reading widely and reading opposing sort of uh, political opinions is also to just pick a couple of things, a couple of issues that you care about and focus on reading widely just on those because otherwise you can get so overwhelmed and there is Definitely. so much informa- information out there. It's very confusing. So if you just say, you know, yes, I care about environment or I care about agriculture or whatever it is, I care about support for small business, mm-hmm. just pick the things you care about and then make sure you read on those topics really widely because yeah. it, it it reveals a whole new world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think like no one's expecting you to become an absolute political expert. But like you said, like if it's just knowing like these are the politicians who, you know, voted, you know, against climate change policy or these are the politicians who voted against, you know, you know, voted for cuts to universities, like whatever it might be that affects you or what you're passionate about, like just sort of, you know, learn a little bit more about that. Or even if you want to break that down smaller, just learn who your local members are and learn what they stand for, you know, so that even if it's just at the next election, at least you are more well-informed about who you're actually voting for. 
brilliant advice, Rachel. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise to today. Otherwise, it would have just literally been me ranting for 40 minutes about what I think <laughs> about politics. <laughs> um, and I guess is Junkie, will Junkie be covering the US election in sort of, you know, relative detail? Um, I I would say that we would be. You know, it's definitely something that our audience is interested in. So, I mean, obviously um, we are a predominantly Australian outlet, um, but with all of the stuff that's been going on recently, like we've doing been doing a lot of coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests. So um, the election is definitely something that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Amazing. Look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for your time today. No worries, Crystal. Thanks so much for having me. If you have thoughts and opinions about political power, digital permanence, what happens when I try to become a politician and all my old tweets resurface, please send me a message. My DMs are always open or send an email to hey at zfeed.com.au. And if you think the world needs more of these big, good conversations about stuff that matters, you can share Debatable with a friend, subscribe to the podcast and really just keep talking about it all. We want to change the world one conversation at a time.